what we've got here is failure to communicate. From sunny Southern California, we bring you Meet Bridget, a podcast for building confident communication and female badassery. We spotlight women who have bridged the gaps in their lives by building strong relationships and speaking their teenage dreams into reality. That kind of takes me into this like pivotal moment in time because it changed the trajectory of where things are going to go for me. I decided to just be me and not be into any of that stuff. Welcome back to Meet Bridget. We're so glad that you're here with us today. I'm Asha Gabriel and I'm Kishia Rosenberg. And together we run a confidence and communication platform for teen girls called Bridget. This is our podcast, Meet Bridget. We're so excited to feature another incredible woman today in an interview. Paulina is a dear friend of mine. We both had babies together during COVID, and we've connected on so many different levels from, you know, experiencing motherhood for the first time together. But also, I just was immediately attracted to her super sharp business acumen. She's just has an incredibly clever mind, and she's a wonderful connector of people. You'll immediately get to know how down to earth and relatable she is. So for a little bit of background about Paulina, Paulina Chepotorieva, I'm going to have her say it later in the podcast because it's beautiful in Russian and I butcher it every time. She is an innovative pioneer with a comprehensive background in business, economics, strategic opportunity investments, and venture capital transactions. Currently, Paulina is a managing partner in Cambridge SPG, a female-led company that brings different perspectives to the investment world in a sector comprised of predominantly female consumers. Her unique perspective and vision goes beyond making money for her fund, but also supporting startup brands that are driving innovative health demand, specifically focusing on healthier non-GMO consumer packaged goods within the food and beverage industry. Her detailed approach to both people and business has helped Cambridge Companies SPG secure and facilitate several key investments, including and you might find some of these to be familiar, Foodsters, which is one of the fastest growing companies in America, according to CNBC in 2016, Once Upon a Farm, which is a national leader in fresh HPP baby food, Owl's Brew, Modern Pop, Wild Friends Foods, just to name a few. So Polina, I thought it would be so great to have her on because she is really our first venture capitalist on the show. Um, yeah, so it's thrilling because she, I think people hear the word venture capital and they get a little bit of, you know, it's a little intimidating. They're like, what does that really mean? But I love Paulina's story because all these investments that, you know, that they really focus on are things that you see when you walk down the Whole Foods aisles of the store. They're very, you know, Paulina and most of our listeners, they are consumers of a lot of these products. So it's exciting to really have a tangible understanding on this interview of what she does. So with over a decade of real estate, angel, and venture capital experience, Polina's deep knowledge and understanding of select market sectors really allows her to underwrite transactions, develop operational teams, execute complex business strategies, and finance transactions. Utilizing her career as her platform, Polina is passionate about empowering women in business and female entrepreneurs charity, art, culture, and has a proven track record of philanthropy and commitment to our community. We're so excited to share Paulina's unique experiences and to dive deeper into her life's work. So welcome to the podcast, Paulina. Thank you welcome. guys for having me. Thank you. 
What an intro. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so flattering. It was to <laughs> talk right now, but <laughs> very hard to fit in everything that you've accomplished over the course of your career. And it like barely touches who you are as a human being and as a, you know, a figure in the community. So I think this is going to be a really cool one, especially for our younger listeners who could gain a lot from your knowledge and expertise. I hope so. Yeah, I think so. For sure. I was young once. Yeah, <laughs> still. <laughs> I mean, I knew we needed to have you on the podcast from the moment we first started talking about, you know, growing up. And you have such a unique, incredible story of your childhood and teen years and young adulthood. So we can just dive right into where you were born, how you grew up, how you were raised, and what childhood was like for you. Sure. So I am from Moscow, Russia. I was born in 84, so that tells you how old I am now. And I came to America in 93, so I was almost 10, and I did not speak any English. My family had to actually escape from Russia at that time period because there was a lot of uncertainty politically. Obviously, communism fell, and the country did not know how to operate in this new capitalist society. So... Russia really saw like the dark ages in the 90s. So we escaped when the borders were actually closed. We took refugee status. My mom is Jewish, so we were able to come under that. And unfortunately, we weren't able to take anything with us. So a lot of the wealth that my family owned, real estate, obviously our flat in center of Moscow was left behind. We could not take anything. We couldn't even take books, clothes, shoes, nothing. So Imagine coming from everything and anything to, you know, everything, private schools. And I was on the Olympic team for ice skating and I had to leave everything behind. And I come here and I'm thrown into this new world. And I went to school and everybody made fun of me because I was wearing Goodwill clothes because <laughs> that's all that was handed to me when I came here. And so that kind of takes me into this like pivotal moment in time because it really made me, it changed the trajectory of where things are going to go for me because I was well accepted in Russia. I was doing really well. I'm an overachiever just by nature. So I was like a perfect A student and I was doing arts and sports and had everything at my right hand if I needed it. And then all of a sudden, here we are, you know, I think the first six months living on welfare. So until my parents you know, went back and they actually had to go back to school because my parents both have, so my dad has three masters, my mom has two, and none of the credits transfer in America. So they, you know, my dad was a CEO of a company and my mom was a TV journalist and obviously they couldn't do those roles here in America. So we went to public school and I had to drop my ice skating because I couldn't get a coach and I didn't have really any extracurricular activities. So for somebody like me, I always need to be doing something. I found myself slowly getting into trouble, which, you know, in my early teenage years, I was a troublemaker. But what got me to, I guess, seek trouble is because, so when I came to this country and I didn't speak English, I was kind of thrown in with a lot of judgment at school because kids, you know, are a little cruel and they seem to be a little bit more cruel in Orange County. I was just having a conversation with someone about this yesterday who has like 
young kids that are in that kind of seven to 12 age group. And she was talking about, she's like, man, I'm having the hardest time because my kids, all they want to do is not stick out. You know, it's like they're anything that makes them different. They're just trying so desperately to hide. And I, I mean, that's what I did. So I was trying to fit in yeah. because like that's your first inclination. And I just couldn't fit in. I mean, my, like it was just funny. Anyway, they teased me about everything from hair to clothes to, I don't know, not shaving my legs at like 11 years old. I'm like, is that what kids do? I didn't even know that, you know, until like people were like, ew. So anyway, the point is, is that. After like two years of being bullied and nobody wanted to hang out with me, or I remember like in eighth, seventh and eighth grade middle school, so you're like 12, 13, I remember I had to pretend I was sick so I can have something to do for lunch and go to the health office. Hmm. That's kind of like where it really hit me where I was like, you know what? I don't really want to be like them. Yeah. So I kind of, in my immature mind, went the opposite so I was trying to be like anti what was cool what was everything and that got me into my little punk rock stage I became a little rebellious so from about the age of 13 till 17 I was a rebel and I did not want to do anything that was conventional and cool and look girly and play sports and do any popular things like I wanted to I I always was good at school so that came easy to me. I still had straight A's, but I mean, unfortunately, I would ditch school and I would go and seek fun outside and go and explore and try to like find mischief and whatnot. <laughs> and I, I probably gave my parents gray hairs. I mean, I don't know because I got my brothers into it. It was bad. But by 17, so I was like my last year of high school, I started to to see that it really didn't matter because that I was in this other clique, this like anti-cool kids, whatever, because then I was just a sheep in a different herd. Yeah. That, that idea, that fundamental idea came to me and I was like, you know what? I really don't want to beat to any of these drums because I'm conforming to either one. And so I was like, I'm saying that I'm anti-conformist, but really I'm just conforming to this other ideology. So I decided to just be me and not be into any of that stuff. So I kind of cleaned up my act. I decided that I don't want to follow just the typical trajectory of what's expected, which is I did go to school. I did go to college, but I didn't want to stay in. At that time, I was living in Mission Diego. That's where my family settled there. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? I got to get out of here. So that's kind of where that time point where I guess the big dream started to come. Mm-hmm get out and start doing something that's bigger and better than that small town, so to speak. It seems like you were self-motivated from a very young age. Like from what I hear of what you're talking about, you experienced this big change, which would be devastating for most young, you know, teen, not even teens, preteens, really, you know, 10 years old is sort of like just on the precipice of being that preteen person and you're experiencing something so big and so worldly and that had to one not only turn your whole world upside down as you describe but then you have to kind of reframe how you're going to fit in into this new world you mentioned you had brothers how many siblings do you have so i have two brothers i'm the eldest and then Mm -hmm. philip who actually is a partner in our firm is one and a half years younger than me 
And I have another younger brother than that. He's seven years younger than me. Did you lean on each other for support during this time? Or so were you Philip sort of I, like... Absolutely. Absolutely. He's always been my best friend, probably because we're so close in age. And I would say there's like a few things that made me be motivated. One, I just, my character, everybody that knows me knows that I'm an overachiever. That must be like a Capricorn thing. I don't know. <laughs> but two, I, I had my brother who's been like my Iraq my whole life, really. And to this day, we work together, we do everything together. So that, and then the third thing that I really like would credit me wanting to accomplish is I watched my parents struggle, like coming here for, mm -hmm. so for 10 years, until they were able to privatize the assets and sell them and start, you know, reinvesting the family money. You know, that's how we started with family office money. But for those 10 years that we weren't able to cash out on all of that, I saw them make such struggles for us and leave so much behind. I really didn't want to let them down. Like, I was like, you know what? They came here. They wanted us to have a better opportunity. Like, I can't just schlep it around and be an average person like that mm -hmm. that's not what they came here for that's not what they struggled for that's not what they you know put their ego down to lower positions like so we can be average like that's not what's expected of us and my parents they brought us up very strict and they had a lot of expectations and I'm so thankful that that's the set of parents that I got because you know hopefully I can mimic that in in my children's lives as well but so that's kind of, those are the motivators from the young age, right? Mm -hmm. And then now I have more motivation. But... You definitely do. <laughs> well, like, it's just, it gets bigger and bigger like every, every year, you know, and I'm so impressed by you always. But one thing I especially love is your closeness to your brother. And I can see how going through something so identity shifting when you're so young, you know, like you're 10 and he was what, like eight and a half at the yeah, time. Yeah. You guys knew those are children, you know, and to, to go from, you know, what you think is a given, like the way that your family just raised you and what you had at your beck and call to just having a completely different setting in every way. I'd love to hear a little bit more about like that, like the initial reaction for both of you. Obviously, it's shocking. But, like, did you guys lean on each other? Like, was he struggling in school, too, with some of the same bullying? He was, he was a little bit more popular, I have to say. <laughs> I feel like maybe boys are not as judgmental as girls when they're little, when they're young. But, you know, like Philip and I, really, we only had each other to talk to because we didn't speak the language. Yeah. So I think that that was like very crucial in understanding like that dynamic. Philip and I were glued to each other we've played with each other because that's all we knew until we were able to learn and probably took like two years to learn the language okay. like fluently yeah Ugh, I can't I mean there's just so much like I you probably could count on your hand like and the number of things that were even stable and they're probably all your family members and that was about yeah. it yeah. yeah I'm from a very good family yeah what about I mean you so you were talking about getting into some trouble when you were a teenager if it, are you comfortable like sharing some of the ways that because we like to just be real you know I'll tell you all ugly I am an open book but yes I mean you can imagine punk rock girls and boys so you know <laughs> a lot of being outside and not doing any healthy things like sports and extracurricular activities I was more like into music and going to concerts sneaking out to concerts sometimes sneaking out in the middle of the night while my parents thought we were sleeping, experimenting with drugs and alcohol, breaking curfew. I mean, 
dressing very alternatively. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, eyebrow raising and yeah. I did it. Did you ever get caught? Did your parents ever catch you? Yes. I'm telling you, I gave my parents gray hair. <laughs> and I think that that's probably like by 17, I had more of an understanding of what I really was doing to yeah, my parents yeah. and to people I care about. Like I started to understand like, you know, this is, this is not going to get me anywhere. This was maybe right. a reaction to something, but it's not going to fuel me for the rest of my life. And I started yeah. to think bigger and outside of the box. And then as I was growing up, like 17, some people were like, oh, you're a pretty girl. I've never heard that because everybody made fun of me my whole, mm -hmm. like, you know, when, since I remember. So I was like, I'm pretty now? That, that's a neat one. So like somebody was asking me if I, if I want to do modeling. And I was like, yes, I do, you know. So like at 18, I tried modeling and I actually was able to travel to a few countries in Europe and did modeling professionally. And that definitely gave me that, like a bigger sight into what I want out of my life, not necessarily modeling, but that I want to be out. I don't want to be in the same town I grew up in. I want bigger and better things. I want to travel. I want to seek things, be exposed to more things, network more, and just establish myself in a different, different society. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, I feel like you definitely have a global outlook. Like you're constantly, you're such, you love to travel. Your business obviously is global in a lot of different ways, but I can definitely sense that that was probably something you picked up in that search for. I got a taste of the good thing. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because you'll, so you'll have to look up Polina because she was one, of, I met her actually at a women's networking event down here in Orange County. And I mean, at first glance, she is polished. She's this like beautiful platinum blonde, always like dressed to the nines, like just amazing, impeccable style, great posture, you know, very well-spoken. So I was seated next to her and we started talking. And at first I was like, well, obviously she's a very beautiful, you know, woman and there's a lot in Orange County, you know, so we, we started talking and I'm like, whoa, like this girl's brain is like on fire. So immediately was impressed by just all that she brought to the table. So you'll have to look her up because it's fascinating for me to think about her going through this kind of punk rock stage and to not think that she's beautiful as an obvious thing. <laughs> but I did. I think, you know, that's probably something that you really have to go through, not yeah. necessarily specifically with, you know, feeling down on yourself or whatever, but just like overcoming certain things because I definitely have the confidence that I have now because I went through this experience. Yeah. Well, I love your point too about that realization where it was like, you know, okay, by being anti everybody else, I'm just, conforming. I'm just, I'm still conforming to an, an opposite thing mm -hmm. rather than, you know, creating just my settling own. settling into yourself. Yeah, I'm yeah. just finding another group of people to cling to. I think that's such a mature realization and probably something that a lot of young women can relate to. I would definitely pass that as an advice for sure for younger women because like you don't need to be a sheep in a herd. Mm -hmm. You don't think, because people are drawn to authenticity. People are not drawn to a copy of something they've seen somewhere else. So like nobody wants to see another Kim Kardashian and all these influential women that all these young girls look up to. Like mm -hmm. people are drawn to something that's different. People are drawn to your a new style. So it's better for you to create and seek your own authenticity than just try to replicate something that somebody else already did. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. That's such a great piece of advice for all of us. 
all of our listeners. Yeah. I'm so interested in hearing a little bit more about your journey after high school. You said that you started to get into a little bit of modeling and that's sort of what sparked your desire to broaden your horizons and create a path in life for yourself that was bigger than just what you were doing as like a teen and to kind of, you know, get out of the little bubble and expand your horizons. Tell us a little bit about that time in your life and how, you know, how and when you decided to go to college and, you know, sort of whether or not you had your sight set on something already or if, you know, that path had to evolve from another set of experiences. Definitely evolved. And I'll kind of take you to from high school till about 23 when I started in real estate, as Asha mentioned. That took about five years. And so modeling was one of the first things that I did outside of high school that kind of broadened my horizons in like travel and making my own money. My parents made me pay for my own college. So I definitely was on my own as far as making all of my payments, car, phone, whatever, bills. So I knew I had to work, but they also expected me to go to college. So I was going to college while I was working two jobs and I was dabbling in modeling. And I've worked a handful of jobs. I worked for a recording company. I worked for jewelry stores. I worked at Marcus first season. I've done it all. So I've had my share of working like a job. And what I think happened around the time I was 22 and that's when I graduated from school. So I was like, okay, I'm done with being at school. I'm actually done working for somebody. Like, this is not, I just had this feeling inside of me that I was just not employable. Like, I have to do my own thing. I literally feel like I am a bird in a cage. I don't do well at a desk job. I don't do well at a somebody micromanaging me. That's probably because I was a rebel at one point in my life. But I just knew that I need to do something. And around the time, like 2005, is when everybody was talking about real estate. Like right now, everybody's talking about real estate. So in 2005, that was the big boom in real estate, right? It's like the 90s was the dot-com era and the 2000s was real estate before the crash. So I was like, okay, real estate, like, do what do I do? Buy a house? That's not going to really make me money, you know? So I was like, what about development? So just back it up. My education is in economics. So I have a, my background is in strategies in micro and macroeconomics. So I kind of have a little bit of a background at that time, even though I was only 22, but I have a business background. So I'm thinking and sitting to myself, like, I have all this money. It was not much, but at that time I was like, ooh, $150,000 is a lot of money, you know, saved up over many years from modeling, from various jobs. What do I do with this? Like, I'm not going to go and put down on a house because that's not going to make me money. I want to go into development. And how did I stumble on that idea? So my father, he is by profession, I guess, a nuclear thermal engineer, but he was a CEO of a company in Russia. But he had a few friends because he was trying to run one of his projects that he has patents on with a man out of Nevada, a close friend of the family. And he owns a bunch of real estate, which he was trying to put solar power on, which didn't end up working. But through that relationship, he said, why don't you go to Las Vegas, which is, was the hottest booming market in 2005, 2004, 2005, 2006. And you can pick up a piece of property, literally not a house, but just like a half acre lot for this 150000 Michael's going to sell you one of his lots and he's going to mentor you and he's going to show you how to 
get a construction loan, which at that time they were giving 100% construction loans if you own the property free and clear. Mm -hmm. So I owned the property free and clear. And I started with my first home. It was a 5,300 square foot house. So a, a custom home. And I built that for about 380,000. Mind you, it's leveraged from the bank, which now I don't think you can even do at 100% LTV. But at that time, and I sold it for close to a million dollars. So I was able to do about, no, I did six of them before the crash. Wow. So the crash in, at least in Las Vegas, it happened end of 2007, in 2000, like beginning 2008. So that's kind of where I got my start as far as one, making big money, two, mm -hmm. handling my own projects and hiring and micromanaging a whole team, right? You have everything from structural to electrical to plumbing and just knowing the timeline of what goes before this and then getting entitlements for the land before it and just the knowledge of who goes first, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't want to do, you want to do framing first, then insulation, then this. So I got that knowledge in those two years, I would say like 2006 and seven. And then 2008 happened, which we yeah. all know yeah. was the big crash. Like I'm a little bit older than you guys. So that was like my business year. So, and it was bad because especially in real estate, it took the biggest hit. Nobody yeah. was buying, nobody was selling. The banks were not loaning. Like everything was just frozen still. And so during this time, there was like two years where I literally was just exploring other options for work. I was settled because, I mean, I didn't just blow through my money, but I was always looking for what am I going to do? Am I going to mm -hmm. go into commercial real estate? Am I going to sell real estate? Like there's nothing in this real estate world that I now excelled at that I can do. And then in 2009, they passed. What, the Basel Five Act that allowed the banks to release all of the foreclosures. So the rule of thumb was that you have to go to the bank with cash because they were still not giving out loans. And you can buy up these foreclosure properties. And they were about 10 to 15 cents on the dollar from its former value. So it was mm -hmm. a steal. And so I called my brother, Philip, because he was working for a Fortune 500 company, DeVita. We all know our DeVita. It's a dialysis. Mm -hmm. uh, the largest in the world. And he definitely had the value add that Philip brought was that he worked for these, you know, for this huge company in integration. So he had a much more institutionalized viewpoint of how to take like a self-made mom and pop business and, and form it into something we can syndicate with other investors and really like do more than just buy one or two of these properties that were available because there was a lot of them available and the opportunity was huge. And so the first property that Philip and I bought together with our own personal money was a property for 280000 that was pre-foreclosed value was over $2 million. Wow. So we got a steal and we rezoned it. So it was, it was zoned for, I think, 12 homes per acre and we rezoned it to multifamily for apartment homes. And we were able to sell it for you know, five times its value. But a lot of people that we knew through our philanthropy are like all of our extracurricular activities. We knew a lot of investors. We just happened to know a lot of people that were interested in the, in syndicating these deals, but they were in LA and they were in Orange County. Nobody was in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to invest. They just needed an operator on the ground. So we were the Vegas connection and Vegas, as you guys all know, 
took the, one of the largest hits. It was like Arizona, Miami, and Vegas. And there was a lot of opportunities. So we started to ask a few people, do, they, do you guys want to come in alongside us? We're looking at this property and this property. And we were buying up some of these properties. They were all like less than a million dollars. So the pivotal moment was in, I want to say 2010, we were at a car dealership getting my car serviced. It was a Bentley dealership. So we were high-fiving each other. We just closed a deal. And mm -hmm. this man comes up to us. His name was Ike Suri. And from Pelican Points Partners. So he was like, what are you guys so happy about, you know? And we're like, we just closed on a deal. And he's like, oh, really? Well, I run a merchant bank, Pelican Point Capital. And we're like, what the heck, what the heck is a merchant bank? You know, in our business, we literally learn things like as you go. There's no yeah. training for it. That's why I always say like, you can go to school, but you, you cannot be an entrepreneur until you yeah. dive in. So we're like, what the heck is a merchant bank? So we looked them up, you know, very prominent bank, uh, merchant bank in Newport Beach. And what they do is they invest in, they have a bunch of family offices come together and invest in multiple different vehicles. Like some verticals are in entertainment, some are in stocks, bonds, and that sector, and some of them in real estate. So he's like, listen, I like what you guys are doing. You guys are very young, but for some reason, I just believe in you guys. And I just want to see what can you put together in one week, like a pipeline of deals. If you were given capital, what would you pick up? What can be lined up for you? And we don't have to play any bidding wars like you got this deal. So we quickly, you know, reached out to all of our brokers that are working for us that were in charge of these bank owned assets. They're special brokers that just worked for the bank. And we put together a pipeline and he was like, listen, I like it. I'm going to give you guys, you know, X amount of dollars and let's go pick up four or five of these deals out of, you know, we put together like 20 deal pipeline. Mm -hmm. So we went and that got us to starting to invest in multi-million dollar properties. And of course, the pre-foreclosure values in the tens of millions. So we were snatching up these amazing deals from the bank. So from about 2009 to 2016, we invested in 44 projects and we had about 350 million all cash, non-leverage portfolio. You can imagine wow. that's a lot of money to raise, a lot of money to cash out on later. And we divested out of all of them now, except for one shopping center we have left. Wow. So we made a lot of money for our investors. And what did our investors do in 2016 when we had no more deals? Because the inventory of these type of deals has run out because the real yeah. estate market was healthy. They were mm -hmm. like, what are you guys going to invest? And we were like, I don't know. Let's look into it. So that was yeah. the next pivotal moment and which got us to where we are now, which is this consumer better for you sector. And the reason why we stumbled upon this, because we did look elsewhere. We looked in fintech, we looked at life sciences, we looked at tech and other real estate projects like multifamily. But we just realized that this was a very defensive sector, which we learned through the last recession, which was actually the boom of healthy eating. Mm -hmm. is that it's a recession-proof business. Nobody goes back to eating unhealthy. In fact, all the millennials were growing up and starting families and they wanted healthier options for themselves, for their family, for their dog, for their babies, for everybody, right? So that was like a booming trend. And actually the consumer was replaced from the baby boomer who was more price sensitive and was looking for deals to these millennials who were less price sensitive and more quality. Mm -hmm. So 
we looked into the M&A activity in the in the sector and we realized that, wow, all of these legacy brands, your Pepsis, your Cokes, your Kellogg's, your Unilever's, your Mondelez, they're all buying up these smaller brands because they tried, you know, in 2007 and 8 to introduce better for you, healthier options. But guess what? The millennial consumer was like, I don't trust this freaking brand. They're like, would you go to the store and buy, you know, Billy Bob's grass-fed hot dog for 50 cents more than Oscar Mayer's organic hot dog? Like, who trusts Oscar Mayer's right. organic product? You don't. So they turned their R&D budget basically into their M&A budget. For those who don't know, M&A is mergers and acquisitions versus research and development. So Perfect. they have plenty of money on their balance sheets and they were looking for these brands to buy up. So we, we saw the exit strategy. We saw that there's plenty of money circling around for these brands. So as an investor like me, the number one thing I look for is, is the brand I'm investing, is it a better for you option? Is it going to make a positive impact if we blow it up big? And mm -hmm. who is going to acquire it and continue that through their distribution strategy? Because in the end, they're not selling out. They're a healthy component to the whole life cycle of a brand. If a brand gets acquired by these big legacy brands, they're not selling out. They're actually enabling the product to reach more mouths mm -hmm. in mid-America where they don't have Whole Foods in every corner. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, some people don't know how to get to order online or they're an older demographic. They're not, you know, Instacart and everything. So it's like... I liked this sector from every aspect, from the actual product to who it's benefiting to money being made for the investors. And we're like, this is where we need to be. So that's kind of what happened in 2016. It's such yeah. a smart trajectory and such a smart path that you took. And I'm obsessed with the fact that you and your brother naturally fell into this cadence together where you were, we're able millennial. to. That's why we get it. There's like that scrappiness to it, which Asha and I love because it wasn't like there was a point where you were just like, I mean, I'm sure there was a point where you were like, oh, what do I do now? But I feel like your attitude is always like one foot in front of the other. So even though you're thinking yes. like, what do I do now? Your active mind is like, or you have thinking. to be moving. Yeah, you, you have to. Is looking for the research already. I am so, well, first of all, short question, the longer question. The short question is, for our younger listeners, in your own words, can you define angel investment and venture capitalism? Because I think that you gave a fantastic definition just by how you fell into it, or not fell into it, how you worked your way through it. But for some of our girls who are just coming out of like high school and going into college and hear these buzzwords and feel like they might be interested in doing something like this, can you give them a little definition? Sure. So angel investing and venture capital is definitely focused more on earlier stage brands. So those two words apply to early stage brands. So brands that are just have a concept and are either in the proof of concept stage or early traction stage. So mm -hmm. they're just getting their first revenue in the first year of business. So an angel investor is somebody that's investing without really knowing the full trajectory of where things are going. Mm -hmm. They're more of an emotional investor. They like the brand. You really don't have enough data to extrapolate to see what year two, year three, year four is going to look like. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot more risk undertaking. However, you get more of a reward. Mm -hmm. So obviously, if you invest in brands earlier on, there's definitely a higher multiple that you're going to get as a return, but your risk is much higher. So just to put things in perspective, only about 
3% of companies make it to 10 million in revenue and only 1% of those get to 20 million in revenue. So at this point of my life, I like to personally invest in brands that are doing north of 10 million in revenue just to do risk. But there's definitely deals that people bring me where I just fall in love with the brand and I'm like, you know what? It's just, this is the YOLO bucket, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> just got to let it ride. I'm going to angel invest in this because I'd like to have exposure to this. And also mm -hmm. let's somebody, especially if you're doing it, not just as a family, friends and family around, but you actually want to be an angel investor and want to get into venture capital. You want to have exposure at that level to a brand that you want to track and you want to be in on the cap table in case they're doing a follow on round. So it is important, even if you're, you know, a bit in a big private equity firm and you're doing, you know, 20, 30 million dollar check sizes, it's still good to kind of interact at the level of the angel investor, because that's where you really discover the next big brands. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you actually, you know, invest in them and make that choice, or you just keep tabs on them until they mature enough where when they cross your paths again, they're investable. But that's the difference between angel investing, venture capital and private equity, which is mm -hmm. more focused on later stage. Mm -hmm. And typically angel investors and venture capitalists are much more involved as like mentors or have seats on boards and things like that too. Correct. So it's like actually getting into the nitty gritty of the business. It's like a baby. You definitely are getting in on the baby. You have to get your hands dirty with those brands for sure, because you have to shape them. So like a mm -hmm. lot of the earlier stage brands that I've invested in, I've definitely had to aid in expertise, everything from building out. Well, first of all, you have to let them focus not just on the qualitative side, which they're really good at, right? They're forming a product and they focus on the quality and the look of it and everything. But you have to remind them from a business standpoint, focus on the quantitative, right? You have to focus on your KPIs, which is your margins, your velocity, your rate of sale, and all the things that, you know, investors are looking at. So if they want to rate money, they have to kind of have those things in mind. So somebody like me would come in and help them, remind them gently that these are other things you really right. need to build out for it to be investable at a bigger level. Yeah. So basically they come to you with the ideas and you have to be that voice of reason reminding them, no, you need measurable data in order to have that turnaround. Yeah, you need things, data mm -hmm. to extrapolate. Correct. Absolutely. On the other side, I think this is also a interview that entrepreneurs can gain a lot of value from because someone who say is starting one of these young companies, there are obvious benefits to and drawbacks to taking money early and working with a well-known venture capital firm, especially one that has a very niche understanding. So for instance, like if you had, say I was starting organic muffin company, you know, and I'm just getting off, like I have a great like following already. But if I were to go to someone like Polina, Polina has a portfolio of other companies all within this healthy food space. So if I go to Polina, not only am I, am I potentially getting money you know, to take my business to the next level, I'm also getting her, her mentorship, but also her connections. Like That's sometimes her. leadership from these different companies, like they, they move from one place to the next. So she might have this inside information that, you know, oh, we really actually, what we need is a head of operations or some specific role that can really help us take our business to the next level. So it's like dating in a lot of ways, right? Very much like dating. That's true. Really symbiotic. That's right. I love that. So my follow-up question to that is you talked a lot about being very interested in like the food and consumer industry that's like caters to health and well-being. 
But I also know that a big part of what you do is focused on, you know, women-led businesses and really elevating these female entrepreneurs. And I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit on why that drives you and, you know, your reasoning behind that. Okay. I definitely have an interesting story. So you guys all know Allie Webb, who started Drybar, female founder. So Allie actually went to 20 different private equity firms to ask for money to blow up uh, Drybar to, to be a national chain. And we all have been to Drybar, and there's a reason why it's a, such a successful business. And every single one of those private equity companies said no to her. And the reason for is they said, why would anybody go and spend $35 for, to wash their hair? And guess what? Every single person on the board there that was in was a man. So nothing against men. Obviously, all my partners are men and I'm the only female. But such an important reason that drives me to be in this field, because I'm at that executive level of decision making where the money goes. And if Ali came and I was there, I would get it. I'd be like, this is a no brainer. Like the millennial consumer is mostly, especially in the food and beverage space, is mostly women. Obviously, there's 50-50 households of men and women. But even for the men households, the women are buying everything for the kids, for the family, for their husbands, whatever. So you can't just discount the fact that, you know, there's ideas that are predominantly for women shoppers. But a lot of these men that are sitting at the executive level of where the money goes in these big firms, those products don't resonate with them. So they discount them completely. So I think it's very important for somebody like me to have this role where I can aid in that perspective. And that's probably crucial because most of our brands have at least one female founder, if not all female founders, mm -hmm. and they're very successful brands. Yeah. I also think that you, you have a powerful way of communicating to female investors, you know, and I disclose openly here that like, I've invested. You're my investor. <laughs> Alina in numerous different products. So, yep. but it was empowering for me because I was the one that brought that decision to our family table you know, as an opportunity because I was able to connect with Polina. And see, I love to see that because a lot yeah. of women, when, you know, when you go anywhere and you're speaking to other women, it's usually about kids or it's about whatever, travel or it's fashion or it's whatever it may be or church or whatever. But guess what? Women like shy away from these conversations about investments. But the thing is, they actually need to nowadays, especially as a lot of women, you know, if they're not getting married for the security or if they're going for a divorce or whatever the reason might be, or maybe they're just, they want to contribute and be just as equal to their husband, but they need to start getting into investment. It could be a missed opportunity because I remember when we, you first laid out the first couple companies, I was like, I've seen that company for years now. That's right. And I know, I remember when I just saw it on one shelf and I've seen it and now it's in Whole Foods and I know every brand on that shelf because yeah. I read the ingredients. You can connect with it, right? Yes. You understand it. Yes. And I think that it's an incredible opportunity for families because, yeah. you know, if it were just, say, a male leading the investments of the household, they might not even see those opportunities where it's like, do you know how much money that we're putting towards, you know, these healthy organic choices? Mm -hmm. It's real dollars and cents and I think beneficial for every woman in this chain. So yeah. I love, I think you can, I mean, you mentioned from an early point that you were always interested in philanthropy, but I just, I love how there's also this built in form of philanthropy in the business that you're doing because the end goal is as you're bringing more money to these companies that are making better for you products, 
that means that those products are getting to more of the country. Yeah. Right. And we actually get to see that. So once we look at all the data, so in the last two years, there has been a drop in diet in obesity and diabetes mm-hmm. countrywide. And we get to see stamp reduction. What is the word? Food stamps? Yeah. The food stamp redemption mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. lower class areas in mid-America for organic products, mm-hmm. which means that that information has finally penetrated those households. Which that's really like my thesis, right? Like just to incrementally change the nutritional landscape of this country. Which I think is phenomenal on so many different levels. The way that you practice business is so well thought out and organized. Like you've mapped how this is going to impact not just your small community, but how that small change, which, you know, you can spark, radiates outward. Just like you said, it starts from your one company with thinking about representing women and bringing women's voices to the table to changing the landscape of how we, you know, buy and consume foods and goods and how it systemically works its way through. It's a slightly different experience, but like I work in the world of medicine and one of the things that I struggled with for a while when I made a big career shift from working inside the hospital to taking my work privately, I was worried that I wasn't going to impact as many people. But there's a lot of truth to the principle in representing what you believe in to be true and real, authentic, going back to, you know, your roots and creating change through these trickle down effects because it takes, you know, one person to keep forging forward and bringing that type of mentality to the table wherever you are. Yep, absolutely. That's a good way of thinking. I mean, yeah, I love it. <laughs> well, and on a totally different note, so Paulina actually just had her second baby. Her first is under two still, but will be two soon <laughs> about as my little girl. So she is on a tight schedule. She is breastfeeding and has a lot on her plate. So as much as I feel like we could talk for hours more, I have so many questions for you always, which is why I love being your friend. <laughs> to respect your time, I think if we can go ahead and like jump into our fast five yeah. questions and our final question. And then of course, like reach out to us, reach out to Polina if you have questions about this industry or space. There's so much to be learned here and and there is knowledge and wealth and empowerment for women in this venture. So company. many different layers to this. I mean, I'm already brainstorming how to get you back here. <laughs> I'm more than happy to come back. Yeah, maybe get everybody's questions and I'll answer. Yeah, we'll get a Q&A going. I'm down. Wheels are turning. Wheels are turning. Yes. Okay. So number one, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Ooh, follow through. A lot of people have big ideas and they get lost and they don't follow through. I think that's like the number one way to get from an idea to success is that you have to live and breathe and follow through whatever it is that you want to accomplish. I love it. There's many, but that one just popped up. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. You go with it. Number two, you are clearly very busy. What is one routine or ritual that you use to ground yourself amidst everything that you juggle? Two things. I have to work out. So for anybody that knows me, I either walk or I do Pilates. I have to have that as part of my routine. And then two, need my family time. I definitely never want to be an absentee mom just because I run a huge company. Like that's important. So I have to compartmentalize and just have those two, like I outside of work. 
I love that. And number three is, are you a night owl or early bird? Well, nowadays I'm an early bird, but I was a <laughs> night owl. <laughs> early bird, because, yeah. you know, nowadays with two under two, you're eating at like 530 and mm-hmm. you're going to yep. bed at 10. But yep. on vacations, I still like to party it up a little. Okay, number four, what is one company you're super excited about? Well, everybody would say Once Upon a Farm. It's just it's such an amazing business and just what it's doing and what it's providing for the nation and for, you know, especially moms like us right now, we're all in the thick of things and there's millions of women like this. For those of you who don't know, obviously Once Upon a Farm is a fresh HPP baby food. Most of the baby food up until Once Upon a Farm was on the shelf and it's older than the baby because it was preserved. And so a lot of millennial moms were just mashing up their own food at home, wasting half of it because the baby's never going to finish half of Mm -hmm. an avocado Mm -hmm. and trying to get these healthy, fresh, organic ingredients into their baby. And now it's available in a pouch and we're just growing that business and it's just going crazy. The babies love them. The the babies love them. We love Jennifer Garner, who just obviously in the last two years joined as a co-founder. And it's just every year they're just doubling their sales. It's I'm so excited about that company more than any. I love it. Me too. They're going to make a big splash of exit. That's Yes. Can't wait for that one. Yeah. Number five. So you're currently doing a full redo on a new house. Yes, I am. Another one of my many things. I'm and casually, <laughs> like she was, she was navigating this whole thing while she was like just super pregnant and a new mom and just doing just has nothing on it. I plate. operate better under high stress. <laughs> I feel that. But what is your favorite part or most exciting part of your current home build? Well, there's many. I'll tell you three because I can't just pick one. One, okay. the view. It's unbelievable. I have a panoramic view now, which before we loved our house, but we didn't have the view that we have now. You feel like you're in Italy when you look outside. Two, this two-story closet. And three, the indoor-outdoor feel of this of this house. So, so okay. fine. Well, I love it that you're still using all of that development skill that you had while you were it's investing. It's in me. In I can't shake it off. I just, if I'm not doing it for business, then I got to do it for myself. You know, I'm excited to see what happens in the next couple of years as like the real estate industry changes again. Hey, maybe there'll be deals. Yeah, that's what I'm yeah. saying. I'm going to be keeping my eye on you, Paulina. <laughs> hey, I'll get you into deals. I love it. I love it. There could be opportunity. So we love to close all of our interviews with one final question that's a little bit more reflective. What was one quality that you had as a young woman that you didn't take pride in then that you look back at now and really appreciate? Kind of want to say the rebellious part. I know it sounds funny, but like I just beat to the beat of my own drum. And at that time I was like, oh, it's getting me in trouble. Oh, I you know, everybody was saying that that's a bad thing about me because nobody wants to deal with that. But really, it's that quality that propels me to where I am now because I just do my thing. Like, I don't care what anybody thinks about me except for my family, my friends. But like, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not trying to impress anybody. I don't need to show off in front of me. I focus on what I'm doing. Yeah. I love it. It's like you took that rebellion and you almost like, instead of trying to join a rebellious group, you have this way of facing potential risk and seeing the opportunity in it fearlessly and yeah. like moving right yeah. into and then it. I don't focus on like people pleasing. I just have to do. And then it just naturally, some people will like it. Some people don't like it. You know, 
in a world where social media has dominated everybody's ability to do that, to beat to the sound of their own drum. I love this piece of advice because it's a very good reminder that you can find absolute success and happiness and satisfaction and still live out your dreams creatively without Instagram, without social media, just the good old fashioned. I'm so bad at Instagram, guys. (laughs) Everybody knows like all my stories are like reposts of my husband's. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't have the time. It's a weird world that we live in, but you know, you are incredible. I think you're just an amazing example to, you know, all future generations of young women and young men and everything in between. And I mean, just like Asha, I'm so excited to have had you just for this last hour Thank and you guys. excited to share your story with our listeners. I feel like this is one that people are going to listen to over and over again because there's so much to gain from all of your experience and knowledge and just your mindset. It's been so fun and Hopefully such a Hopefully I'm always positive. That's what yes. I want people yeah. to know. I feel <laughs> like, you know, always look at the bright side and just persevere on. Yeah. I know. You're one of my like my can do friends. I'm like, Polina never like stops and sits in the mud and is like, that's my key phrase. There's no such thing as a no. It's a yes with conditions. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Always a yes with conditions. (laughs) No, there's no such thing as no. I love it. This has been incredibly empowering. It's just thank you, girls. Thank you, ladies, for having me. Thank you so much for your time. And that's our show. If you liked what you heard today, please like, subscribe to, follow, and share Meet Bridget with your circle. The best way to help our work here is to rate and review our podcast. We're listening and constantly working to build something helpful for you. Catch you next time. Did you have an awesome time? Did you drink awesome shooters and listen to awesome music and then just sit around and soak up each other's awesomeness?